Good morning. You're listening to 42 Minutes, a production of ThinkBook Radio and thethinkbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day, a show that's willing to explore the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything with our mutant superpowers of symbol, literacy, and synchronicity. Today is February 19th, 2013, the day before Rihanna's birthday, and I am Douglas <laughs> Bowles. This is episode number 72, and this morning we will attend an American religious service. Amen, Brother Doug. The religion of no religion. My name is Will Morgan, and today, it, it, on 42 Minutes, we're speaking with our friend, Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, um, who has allowed me to call him Jeff, so mom, don't get mad at me. Religious scholar and author, he holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University in Texas. Did I say that correct? It's Razor? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, where he is also the chair of the Department of Religious Studies. Uh, we should stress that his body of work is really a body of work, a, a corpus mysticum wherein he is cataloging and co-creating an American gnosis and hermetical textual tradition. More information about his work can be found at his site, kripal.rice.edu. His philosophy on authoring the impossible, where individuals become aware of their inherent and creative divinity, culminates in his 2011 book, Mutants and Mystics. I did not write this, and Doug, you are torturing me. <laughs> but the nexus point for this line of thinking, and his country anyway, begins at Big Sur, at Esalen. And this is why we are discussing his 2008 book this morning, Esalen, America, and the Religion of No Religion. However, that being said, you know, we're probably, we've already started the conversation talking about so much more, so I'm going to continue with that. I mean, you are a historian, wouldn't you say that? After reading two of your books, I would definitely say that this is what you've done with the majority of your career. Right, so I, I was trained in a, in a field called History of Religions, ah. which is essentially um, uh, a discipline that attempts to trace the history of religious experience across cultures and across time, but also tries to locate patterns, um, similarities that can be, you know, traced in those different cultures and time periods. So yeah, that's what I'm doing in these books. Is I'm I'm trying to uh, write um, histories of phenomena that people may not think have histories or or aren't important but that I suspect are. Do you believe that comic books are religious history? Um, comic books certainly um, treat religious themes and 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 are treated as religious objects by <laughs> by a lot of folks these days. I mean we essentially treat them uh, particularly the old stuff we now treat like relics or or fine art so yeah i mean they've they've taken on religious qualities and of course the superhero participates in a long long history of of uh, imagining gods and shamans and saints and, and uh, things like that absolutely so it's a sort of it's a sort of a, a camouflaged religious literature if you will okay so one of the reasons why we decided to read this mammoth book here about Esalen. 
It's because man. you had another thing better to do, right? No, it is a textbook, man. It is a serious textbook. But what? however, we Doug and I also commented to each other while we were reading it that you somehow the the voice that you're writing with motivates you to keep reading. It, it is a, a large history, a lot to do, but you handle it with such a sense of, look, I have to see it from this point of view because this is who I am. And also, like, there's a sense of humor to it. Right. Well, I tr yeah, because, well, I hope so. That's, that's certainly what I intended. And, you know, the, 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 the intent of the book is that the, the story of American religion is usually told in one way, i.e. through denominations and churches and things like that, but there's a whole nother story that's that's happened that um, I was trying to tell with a sense of uh, uh, excitement and and uh, in humor, as you put it, because it is funny, um, but it is profound at the same time. Yeah, the, the Hunter S. Thompson shooting out the window is hilarious to me. Yeah. I, just, I just picture like Bill Murray doing it, or, or like Johnny Depp <laughs> just shooting right. out of a window, you know? Well, right. so that's the interesting thing to me is how this is a vortex here. Somehow, so the the comment I wanted to make was how anytime I read a Jeffrey Kripal book, it puts me at ease. I don't feel as crazy because it's like <laughs> so many other people have done this and been there and it's okay. It's like, right. okay, let me hold your hand and I'll walk you through this. And it's like, you're not crazy. <laughs> so thank <Right>. you. <laughs> yeah, well, that again, that certainly was part of the intention is to show people who feel like they they may be crazy or alone or just weird that actually they're pretty normal in the context of this American <laughs> they, history. They have a they're, place for you. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what's so amazing is that, uh, you know, a lot of people who get into various occult fields end up looking at different things you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, but this is really comprehensive in that you, you know, it seems like anyone who was anyone was sucked into this nexus that that is Esalen. You know, there's, it seems like anyone worth writing about is in this book. Yeah, certainly in those fields, I think that's actually true. Uh, that's exactly how Esalen has functioned for 50 years as a kind of uh, stage or or pilgrimage spot for pretty much anyone writing in these zones or, or in these worlds. I also noticed how, I mean, I've heard you say this, I've listened to a lot of your audio and stuff before, but I, I get I get the whole picture now. I, I get how all of these books kind of, you know, one develops into the other one. They're all kind of intertwined. Yeah, well, that's great. I appreciate you saying that because, again, that's, and it's not that I, it's not that when I was writing each of those individual books that I knew how they all fit together. It wasn't like that at all. But it was very much the case that the next book would always come out of the previous book. Right. The, the seed of it was always there. And so there is a, they're kind of chapters in a, in a, in a, in a really, really big book, uh, even though they, they look really different on the outside. If you get into them, I'm really struggling with the same questions over and over again, and uh, just with different historical materials. All right, I'm going to throw you a curveball, um, because once I read this one, I associated what you had basically told me in Mutant and Mystics, which was that through the synchronicity that happened to you in the parking lot with yeah. the, the, the X jewelry that has been talked right. about in so much of your work, 
But I understand now what that moment meant to you because you were you were coming out of the X Men movie, thinking about its relationship to Eslon. Right. Exactly. And so the whole time I'm reading Eslon, I'm labeling these characters with individuals from the X Men, you know, catalog. So. And my kids are obsessed right now, this is a true story, with X-Men First Class. It's like on HBO, so they wake up every morning, and they're, Dad, we're watching X-Men! Beast is on! Get in here! You know? So, right. I label the two characters at Eslon, that being Michael Murphy. I mean, Michael Murphy is Michael Murphy, like Peter Parker, Clark Kent. So, like, it, it's a character in a comic book. But I see uh-huh. him as Professor X, and I see... Uh-huh. Dick right. as Magneto. Is that a <laughs> I don't yeah, I don't know about Dick being Magneto. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't I maybe, you know, Mike certainly is a kind of Professor X character. He's the intellectual of of the tradition and the kind of intellectual leader behind the scenes as it were. Dick Dick was um certainly not the bad guy. He he was the good guy and as well and was really the, the the really the father of the community, kind of on the ground. Um, In a nutshell, but, could you sketch the origins of Esalen and who these two people are? You were sure, about? sure, absolutely. So, so Esalen um, is is an institute and and a community um, in Big Sur, California, and it goes back to the fall of 1962. Uh, it didn't exist yet at, at, as Esalen, but it, it was started out as a series of seminars, bringing in people um, like Gregory Bateson and Alan Watts and folks like that. Um, and it was founded by two Stanford graduates, both young men at that point, uh, a man named Richard Price and Michael Murphy. And um, both men were athletes, both men were graduates of Stanford, and both men had sort of breakout religious experiences in 1956, 57. Um, Dick's, uh, Dick's occurred actually um, before that uh, in the in in San Francisco well, with the beat culture, and led to a kind of psychological break or breakdown. Uh, and he was institutionalized and and got out of uh, this mental um, hospital in 1956, 57. And so he founded Esalen really as a place of healing, as a place where people who had been abused by uh, this Western um, uh, model of reality or or the psychiatric system at that point could come and and be healed, and and uh, their their uh, mental conditions could be also seen as potential spiritual openings, and not simply as as pathologies. Mike, See, on the I'm other still hand, thinking Magneto, man. I'm still thinking. Okay. So Mike, on the other hand, um, was drawn really to a kind of fusion of East and West. He was inspired by an Indian philosopher named Sri Aurobindo, who who had written um, uh, about really an X-Men uh, philosophy or worldview in the first decades of the 20th century. And really saw evolution as the the force behind 
um, the spiritual life and, and the spiritual life as the force behind evolution. And so Mike founded Esalen really as a kind of ashram, an intellectual think tank to bring um, Eastern mysticism and Western science together. And and uh, so they started out in 1962, really, it's really just a series of seminars bringing in intellectuals and writers mostly, and psychiatrists and, and folks like that. Um, but then, of course, what happened about 63, 64, the, the counterculture broke out in, in the same part of the world, and the two um, two sort of created a synergy. And, and, and Esalen became one of the nodes of the California counterculture in the 60s and 70s, the other being, of course, the Bay Area. Um, and so it just sort of took off from there and, and developed uh, in very different ways in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and, and up to today, where it's still quite active. Everybody went through there, too. It is amazing the amount of people who were just hanging out at Eslan. Right. I've never heard well, about it. That's what's so crazy to me is there's a there was it actually involved the first interview that we had with you, but I had a whole bunch of synchronicities about Eslan and it's like it was this uh, phantom that was on my peripheral, but how, for some reason I had never heard about it. Um, well, well, you'd never heard about it. I mean, if you would have been a teenager or a twenty-something in the sixties or seventies, you would have heard about it almost certainly. Um, the thing to remember is a, a lot of the things that Esalen stood for in the 60s and 70s were completely outside the norm then, but they're completely normal now. Um, so to give you an example, yoga. I mean, yoga and meditation were being um, taught and experimented with in the, in the late 60s there. And, of course, now there's a yoga center on on every other corner in these in the major cities, so it it was it was such a nexus because it was doing things that no one else was doing, and you probably haven't heard of it today because there are so many other places where these things are done. Uh, it's 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 essentially perhaps we could say Esalen has has become a bit invisible by by reason of its success. Oh, so it became so, almost cliche then. Because it was such well, a powerful. Well, it didn't. Be, I mean, what Esalen stood for has not become cliche. I hope, but but the things it stood for and was doing are are widespread now. So you know, it's easy to recognize something when it's the only one in the culture. It's it's much harder to recognize something when there are thousands of inst institutes and people and, in and writers trying to do these things. Okay, so cliche was the wrong word. Perhaps I should say that it became more Taoistic then. So it became like the the dusty old man that controls the whole rest of the culture. Does that make sense? I'm yeah. sorry. I'm a Taoist. Yeah, no, that's, that's okay. It's okay, Well, I mean, again, I wouldn't say that Esalen has controlled that culture. I think Esalen has been a kind of catalyst. It's sort of been, you know, it's sort of like Jesus's parable of the yeast in, 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 the, in, the, in the bread, right? I mean, it's there, it's active, it's incredibly influential, but its influence is largely indirect. Um, you, don't, you don't see, for the most part, direct influences of Esalen on, on the culture, but what you're not seeing is countless indirect influences. And I really think that's been its main 
historical uh, role um, um, these last five decades. So there's a book that came out a year or two ago called All Things Shining, and, and in that the authors state that you know their look is at Greek consciousness and how it was different than our modern consciousness. But the interesting uh-huh. thing that they note is how that in the 60s, during the counterculture, there was this moment when consciousness could have gone a different direction where, you know, their their thesis is that you know, the gods are the things that focuses a culture. So right. In, right. In, in Greek thought, you know, they were attuned with these gods and it was pantheistic. And so they're, depending on which way the flow was going, you could be, you know, in tune with Ares and be warlike or in tune with Aphrodite and be, you know, loving. And therefore... There was less, according to them, there's less judgment because depending on which way the wind's blowing, you're just in tune with, you know, the moment, so to speak. Right. But the interesting thing to me is how, you know, they were saying the counterculture was this moment where our culture started to value a different mode of consciousness. And I'm wondering if it didn't actually take more than they realized that it's still, like you're saying, this indirect influence that's changing the nature of how we interact with reality. Well, I think so. I mean, and this is what I was talking about earlier before we went, we started to record is that you know, I wasn't there in the counterculture, but I grew up just after it. And I've always felt like m- most of the ideas and influences that that uh, my generation has, has dealt with really came out of that, that decade. And, you know, the case has been made that that what the counterculture was was an attempt to make consciousness primary and culture or society secondary and and you can see that in the psychedelic um uh excesses but also in the psychedelic uh, revelations you can see that in the music you can see that in a lot of the protest movements and sort of the all of the the civil rights the the gay rights the 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 feminist movement that came out of that period i mean there's just so much about it that is still with us but it's really most of it's still unfinished business i mean we're still struggling on on all those levels in the culture but but those those um those processes i think start really in the counterculture in some fundamental way and it's interesting how it, they really the counterculture pushes things so far. You know, you take things to the like no boundaries. Like there was a, a line in the book that somewhere I can't find it, but it says the filters always return. So there's this right. Uh, Victoria Nelson has this wonderful passage in her memoir about where she merged like the inner her inner world and the outer world became one for a moment. Where uh-huh. her inner state and she called it a pathetic fallacy. And it seems like that's one of those thrusts of the counterculture is to take all the boundaries away. Like, and I think about this in terms of psychedelics, but I wonder, there's a great line in Mutants and Mystics where, you know, you can't, you can't be Superman all the time. You have to eventually return to right. the daily planet and be Clark Kent. <laughs> oh, by the way, right. Jeff, dude, I steal that from you all the time. <laughs> I steal it from you all the time. When people oh, come well, to me, like my friends, and they're talking, I'm like, you can't be Superman all the time, man. <laughs> well, of course, I, that's not original with me either. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think it's real. there's real wisdom there. 
you know, the, 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 the title of my second book, I stole from William Blake, the road of ex- road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. And I think the counterculture was very much such a road. Um, but the point is, is once you get to the palace, you, you don't need the road anymore. And the other thing that happened, of course, is that that youth culture grew up and, you know, it's one thing to have no boundaries when you're 23 and single it's quite another to be 33 with two children and to have no boundaries. Um, so I think, you know, this is what the baby boomer generation was, was largely about, was really testing all the boundaries of their the previous generation um, and then coming back to some kind of balance or some kind of necessary compromise with, with the social world and with the realities of, of, you know, raising families and having to make a living and, and all the things that, that come with being 30-something instead of 20-something. Right. I mean, I just think that's human, and I think that's that's fine. And I think um, I'm so happy they broke the boundaries, and, and I also totally understand why they returned to boundaries. I mean, I, I, I don't see how it could be any any way else. Well, being the age that I am now, which is 34, almost 35, yeah. and my generation basically, I mean, we're kind of in the beginning of the internet generation. So that makes us conspiracy theorists, all right? right. So what's uh-huh. up? I mean, I've had people directly telling me to ask individuals who are involved with that culture about the CIA and Eslan. And I know that... Uh-huh. You weren't there, but what the hell is all of this look like? It's creepy as shit for. Well, I don't. I I'm not sure what you're asking. I mean, Esalen was in the gun sites of the Nixon administration. Okay. Um, and you know because it was seen as it's just part of the problem. The, one um, of the main catchphrases around the internet nowadays is um, uh, MK Ultra and brainwashing, and they say that Aslan is some kind of like brainwashing. Like, are, are you it, sure you're not thinking of Est? No, I'm thinking. Yeah, I mean, Aslan. there was a there, you know there was a group called Est, um, which is often associated with a kind with brainwashing techniques, but. But that's a very different uh, um, history than than the Esalen history. I don't know of any CIA connections with Esalen, um, to be honest. I do know, with the exception of, you know, they were very active with Russian-American diplomacy in the 70s and 80s. And so, of course, they, they certainly brushed shoulders with American intelligence organizations in their work in in the Soviet Union, and I, you know, I detail all that in the book, or not right. all of it. I detail some of that in the book. Um, so they're clearly they clearly did have deep connections to um, the different uh, um, administrations in the 70s and 80s, but they were almost all they were usually seen as a extremely liberal progressive force in American society, and and certainly I don't know of any connections. Um, with MK Ultra or any of the darker stuff, I, I would find that deeply um, suspicious, actually. So, on your adventures out to Aslan, you've never seen anything that would lead you to believe that 
it was anything more than like this homegrown healing. Um, no, I've institute. never seen anything even remotely dark and conspiratorial like your like your your I'm, question or there is asking. It, it was my responsibility to ask. I was just. Well, it's fine. <laughs> you know, and I'll say too. Um, you know, I'm often asked about conspiracy theories because I also write about UFOs and and things like that. And I honestly have to say, and this this may sound may not be what some of your listeners want to hear, but conspiracy theory for me is is a barometer um, that something is fishy or wrong. In other words, I don't believe conspiracy theories. Um, I think they serve a lot of psychological functions. But right. they're almost always deeply, deeply distorted perceptions of what's actually going on. And and part of the reason I say that is, you know, I've worked for large organizations my whole adult life, uh, mostly universities, well, really only universities and colleges. And I know that any large organization, it's simply impossible to keep any secrets, much less things like hidden alien bases or you know, CIA connections. I, I just, I just don't think that's possible in most of these institutions that are associated with conspiracy theories. And so the question for me is why, why do people, why are people attracted to conspiracy theories? And I think there we have some pretty good answers. Uh, they make people feel special. They make people oh. under feel like they're inside a secret, and that they understand how the world works and nobody else does. Um, so in other words, they serve they serve religious purposes essentially, and and I get that, but that doesn't mean I believe the the theories because I don't. It's the the symbol reading part of it that it kind of drives people crazy because like the natural world uses symbols, so everything because I mean we're not really a conspiracy podcast. What we are is a synchronicity podcast. We're synchronistics, right? Um, right. And so like it you get to this point where if you're very symbol literate, you're seeing things from every direction. And that's what cosmic <laughs> right. coincidence. Right. Uh, and that can, that can kind of flip over, can it, to a kind of paranoia sometimes. And, and uh, I get that. I totally get that. You know, uh, it, at Esalen, they talk a lot about negative synchronicities and, and about, you know, at the point at which uh, synchronicities are, are being projected rather than actually happening or read. And so we also always have to be aware of that as well. But I think synchronicities are are simply a fact of, of the world and that they happen all the time and that they are deeply meaningful. So I'm totally on board of synchronicities. I'm I'm deeply suspicious of conspiracy theories. There's a gentleman by the names of, of James Tilly Matthews, and I think he was the first schizophrenic. But the interesting thing about his tale is that he had limited amounts of information that he needed to make sense of, and so he would craft these uh, paranoid uh, conspiracy narratives to make sense right. of his world. And right. so it's it's weird because I feel like we occupy that space between between those. Where in in the history of Esalen, you mentioned that a lot of the a lot of the decisions that they made were based on synchronicities. Yeah, well, a lot of decisions that Mike made were based on synchronicities. Uh, not so much institutional decisions, but certainly 
decisions about which direction to go with you know with the symposia or with the seminars or his own his own writing absolutely but there is there is this quality in our own minds you know we have this need to tell stories or to make sense of things and right. utilizing what we have at hand the community that we kind of are part of went into that world of conspiracy and then you know we're seeing what appears to be like a grand narrative and yeah, right. naturally you think uh someone's writing this narrative and those people are they know how the universe works or running the world or something but well here 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 i think's the real insight in conspiracy theories is that the world is not what we think it is things are not what they seem okay so i think that's that's a correct insight into the workings of the world and, and into the workings of culture and religion and everything else. I think the mistakes come when people imagine that there are actual historical individuals sitting around somewhere writing these narratives or coming up with these uh, these horrible truths that they're hiding from everyone else. I don't think there are any such individuals. But I do think it's the case that we are written and that we are caught in stories or narratives that we did not write and that are controlling our behavior, sometimes in really quite uh, destructive ways. Um, but I think what's writing those narratives are not individuals, but, but what we call culture or religion or language. We're, we're caught in those, those webs and those, those fictions called culture and religion. But again, there's no... I don't think there's any single individual or group of individuals doing that. Okay. And I think that's what a paranormal experience largely is, is, is a kind of early awakening into this realization that, oh my God, I'm caught in a story. I'm, 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 inside, a, I'm inside a novel or I'm inside a movie. Okay. And, um, Still issues authority, authority aside, there was something there at the ashram, something Murphy felt to be tangibly present. When he was finally allowed, for example, to uh, meditate in Ario Bindo's apartment, he lost consciousness of the outer world almost immediately and quite completely. So powerful was this contemplative experience that he could speculate it in F.W.H. Meyer's terms, that the room was a kind of phantasmogenic center or in Rupert Sheldrake's later terms, that the master's long decades of spiritual practice has created in effect a kind of morphic field in the holy room. This has to do with charisma, and this has to do with like the, the auric charge of an individual or a, a, a place, right? Right, right. This, is this sexual energy? Is this organ energy? I mean, that's what... <laughs> well, that's what Reich would say. Yeah, um, I mean, I... Again, I mean, my sense of things there, which I discuss in the book, is that human sexuality—it's it, not that these um, metaphysical or altered states of energy are simply sexual energies. It's rather that sexual energies and these metaphysical energies are all manifestations of some other deeper fundamental ground or, or energy system. Um, so they're, they're they're related, but they're not they're not the same thing. Um, I think it's much easier to actually to reduce sexuality to the mystical than to reduce the mystical to sexuality. If that if that makes any sense. 
um, because, because it's really a question of what's more fundamental. Um, but as you know, I do think a lot of a lot of these religious experiences are suffused with erotic uh, forces and and are often catalyzed or 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 triggered during during sexual activity or, or in sexual states. Absolutely, but not that one that you just read. I, I don't think so. Not knowing Mike and knowing something about Arabindo. <clears throat> so this, I mean, so if if you were going to ask me to boil the book down. Um, I would say it's about the enlightenment of the body. Do you think that would be fair? I think that's really fair. I mean, that's kind of what I say, isn't it, in the introduction? Yeah, and and then this, I think, is why I like you so much, because it seems like there's a lot of spiritualism now that really is seeking a transcendence uh, away from material. And for me, this, you know, like our environment is so screwed up. We've created a mess that we want to escape from. Right. And naturally to rapture out of here would be wonderful right but it's also an escapist fantasy and 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 um, the worst part of that fantasy is that you know it can come true if we act on it <clears throat> so um that's a bad idea and and the enlightenment of the body um which is really kind of my <clears throat> not even mine. I borrowed it from a, from an American, <laughs> uh, a We're very teacher. honest on this show. <laughs> yeah. I mean, most of the things they say I didn't come up with. I, I, I stole or borrowed or spun spun out. But, but of course, scholars have these wonderful things called footnotes where <laughs> we can acknowledge our theft and, and, and ease our, ease our, our, uh, our guilt. But now, the enlightenment of the body comes from um, actually Adi Da, one of these uh, charismatic tantric uh, American spiritual teachers whom, whom I've uh, studied and, and, uh, and spent time with his community. So I, I got that phrase from him. But I think it fits the Eslin case really, really well. Um, uh, not that they're followers of Adi Da, they're not, but, but they clearly see uh, spiritual experiences as um, deeply connected to the human body. And they're trying to work towards some kind of worldview where spirit and sex or mind and matter are not two separate things, but are two dimensions of, of the same thing, are two sides of the same coin. So one, uh, di- <laughs> one direction I'd, I'm curious about. So we were talking about, so this, you know, the counterculture and um, right now, and I'll bring in Terrence McKenna too because of his. Time waves, you haven't by now. That's why we <laughs> asked him here. McKenna's one of the main sources for this whole like somebody mentioned the fact that McKenna had CIA ties and that he created this two thousand and twelve meme for the it had something to do with the control of the counterculture. Do you know the distraction of the New Age movement or but that's that juvenile I mean, Christopher Knowles has written about this with rock and roll, too, though. You know what I mean? It's like there's always these yeah. conspiracy theories that something's being... Right. But Again, and that, that is... to me is always a red flag. <laughs> I, I just don't believe it. So, but Terrence McKenna stayed there, though, right, Doug? Oh, Terrence was... Terrence was uh, Terrence McKenna was a major figure at Esalen and really considered it his spiritual home and, and gave one of maybe his last public lecture at Esalen, which I talk, you know, I talk about in the book. And, and um, I never had the good fortune of meeting Terrence. Um, 
but I, you know, he was a, a, a he is a much beloved figure at Esalen, and and a very important historical influence, I think. And so that's part of this. We're we're following our own little trail here, trying to make sense. And I think this happened because you know he created that December twenty first meme. You know, it's right. a rapture end of the world scenario. Right. Um. Uh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, you know, just I, I had, I, you know, when people ask me, sometimes people ask me, um, what's my favorite part of that book, and and there's a lot of favorite parts. But one of my favorite sections is the little section on Terence McKenna called called Alien Gnosis, um, because every time I reread it, I giggle, and um, and you know, it's about this, it's about his idea that um. Uh, that that human beings are essentially monkeys that uh, popped a hallucinogenic mushroom at some point and <laughs> whammo, there's human consciousness. And uh, and then he, and then he you know he kind of waffled on whether the mushrooms were 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 the portal for some kind of alien consciousness or whether they actually were aliens and the spores had floated in from outer space. <laughs> and so when I think of that idea, this see, I'm giggling now. I'm giggling not because I think it's ridiculous, because it's weirdly plausible, but there's absolutely no way we're ever going to prove that. And I just think it's hilarious. And And that's sort of my response to a lot of Terrence's writing is that, it's so beautiful. It's so playful. It's so uh, trickster-like, and uh, and I don't actually know enough about the time wave stuff or the 2012 stuff to even have a an opinion about it. But I, you know, I wonder how much of that was in this same kind of um, trickster-like um, uh, rhetoric, and 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 maybe wasn't meant to be taken so literally. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> It just, just has a very mushroom feel to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. So maybe that's the question. It seems like a lot of the players involved in this world were academics. They all had come oh. out of universities and stuff. It's true. And that was one of the things I wanted to show is that, uh, you know, academics are not always eggheads. And 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 the, the the genius of early Esalen was not just the academics, and it certainly wasn't just the youth culture. It was the youth culture that had hooked up with the eggheads. <laughs> it, it was young people getting together with old people with ideas and working together. And that was what generated all of this amazing stuff. The, the youth culture wouldn't have known what the hell to do. And the the old egghead didn't have the energy or, or the wherewithal to, to create a social movement. But, you know, you put those two together and you just get this amazing uh, explosion. So. so now we have free information everywhere, but we don't have guidance what to do with that information. Right. So you have, much just, of it. Yeah, you have the youth culture trying to make sense of all this conspiracy, say. But... Um, what would we had a gentleman on last week talking about how he made these incredible videos, you know, five years ago that kind of showed uh, some of this mystical tradition, you know, created crafting a narrative from the larger the larger synchronicities. And he would get he was influential influential and inspirational, and he would get emails and they would say, 
uh, where where should I go to school? How do I study this? You know, what is the what is the path I should take? And so you are an academic. Could you offer some advice to people who listen to our show? Yeah, I mean, my my sense is so I work with young people too, and and I mean much younger people than probably most of your listeners, and it's a tough one. Um, what we, I think, need is a kind of connoisseurship that we don't yet have. We need an ability to sift through um, a lot, a lot of stuff and, and get to the, the really good stuff and focus there. Um, I think my, my own answers to this are, are not very good answers, frankly. You know, they're, they're, they're really about youth culture, listening to intellectuals and intellectuals listening to the youth culture and trying to form new new forms of community around that, like your show, like what you're trying to do. That's a, a great expression of that. But I also think, and this is where it gets tough, I don't think these things can be forced. Um, I don't think the zeitgeist is yet right for another kind of counterculture, for example. It's just... The, the the pieces aren't in place, and and so what I what I always encourage people to do is work in their smaller communities and and plant these seeds, and and don't stop, and when the zeitgeist gets around to 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 these sorts of ideas, things will spark and spike. Then, and the example I always give again is Esalen. I mean, someone like Aldous Huxley or Abe Maslow, or Alan Watts, or whoever you want to name, those people were working for decades before they were known by the broader culture. And and then suddenly, there they were. Or take Joe Campbell. Joe Campbell was teaching at Esalen in the late 60s and 70s, and nobody had ever heard of him. Right. And he really didn't hit the culture in any big way until Bill Moyers interviewed him in the, in the late right. 70s, early 80s. So I think, I think if our goal or if your goal is to impact the broader culture and to, or to create some kind of social movement, I think, I think you need a lot of patience. And I think um, you need to build your networks and to focus on quality and, and essentially to wait. Um, because I don't think we can just you know, um, mechanically produce these these broad cultural um, manifestations. Well, I think that's where we're going to have to end it. It's about 42 minutes. And so thanks for coming back. I think um, probably we'll have to read your other book and have you back <laughs> on. <laughs> we're ready for to author some impossible. Oh, you must. Yeah, and yeah, you must read that one. That's a good one. <laughs> All right, well, please stay on the line for just a few more minutes, if you don't mind, because I'd like to ask sure. you some additional questions. Sure. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. I, I hope that was okay. I mean, I, I don't know if those were all the answers you wanted, but that's what I really think about all those things. 